0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Smith. Welcome to our podcast, Training New Tricks, a series where we delve into the world of learning and development to unlock the challenges and successes of our industry in order to discover how to reinvent ourselves and our departments for the new world after coronavirus and make learning relevant. Obviously, I can't undertake such a broad and hugely important thing just by myself. And so each week, I'll be with my old friend, Nathan Akers, discussing things from classroom to digital frames of mind to departmental structure. This is the podcast where two old dogs teach you new tricks. As a slight break from normality, the two old dogs discuss the five books that have changed their lives. In this episode, they each share two of their five books.
1: Welcome back to podcast eight, two old dogs training new tricks. My name's Nathan, and as always, Jonathan's taking the lead. Hi Jonathan. how's uh, things?
0: I'm well, thank you. How are you?
1: I am good, I'm good. How's your week been
0: yeah it's 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 gone past I think you said last week that all the days kind of fly into one kind of merge into into one and yeah, it's another week that's gone past very quickly, hasn't it
1: ah uh, it, it Having something like this in your week makes you realise that uh, seven days is not that long a period of time, is it?
0: Absolutely right. Yeah, I totally agree.
1: You know? So, as per usual, we start off with our little what have we learned section. Um, would you like me to start?
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: All right. So, I do some of my best thinking when I'm riding my bike, um, which is... Silly because oftentimes you are so focused on the actual riding of the bike and the terrain moving underneath you and everything else that um, you move into a place of flow where you're not thinking, you're just doing and you're doing it almost instinctively. And when you see professional mountain bikers, it doesn't matter what it is, professional sports people in general... And you watch their brilliance. That's really them in that place of flow, you know, where they're not actually having to think about how to kick the ball or how to move the handlebars or whatever it is. But I was out riding and talking to another friend, the the word vulnerability came up. And uh, I remember kind of thinking it over in my mind. and think vulnerability What? Yeah, you know, and um, you you might recall that Brene Brown did a TED Talk where she introduced, well, uh, that's probably a little bit unfair. Um, You know, it wasn't like she came up with the word or anything. But it was a hugely successful TED Talk, 20, 30, whatever million views. And she basically said that she wanted to put herself out there and actually be vulnerable that she wanted to understand the the connection between shame and vulnerability. My learning for the week is the connection not between shame and vulnerability, but between trust and vulnerability. And I know trust is a really big thing for you. Uh, You do a lot of work with teams on trust and leaders on trust. And we've done a lot of work over the years um, on various courses, running, you know, building trust and things like that. So it's it's always a surprise to me when you have an epiphany after being involved in something for so long. The learning for me was that in order for trust to exist, I have to actually make myself vulnerable to the point where I'm actually prepared to accept the fact that you might let me down. And I think a lot of times this is the uh, blocker in trust. I don't want to trust someone because they might let me down. You know what if they let me down? What if they don't deliver on time? What if their work is not of a quality that I, I need it to be? what if you know and I have to redo it, et cetera et etc et cetera. So we end up in a situation where we don't give trust. And because of that, people sense that. They don't reciprocate trust, and we end up in a, in a, for want of a better way of describing it, a hostile environment where, where trust doesn't exist. So my learning was that in order to genuinely trust someone, I have to accept the fact that I may be let down. And that's where vulnerability comes in. Because what I'm doing is I'm actually removing that I don't know what, how to describe it. That hard shell, you know, that impenetrable, impenetrable shell that, that says, uh, if I, if I don't trust this person, I can't be hurt. You know, my reputation can't be damaged. Um, no one can point the finger at me. So all of a sudden, I, my, I had a connection between vulnerability and trust. And this is where you turn around and go, oh. He's known that and Nathan, you're an idiot. Uh,
0: (laughs) not at all, Matey. Not at all.
1: But 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 it was it was for me it was a real kind of epiphany. It it was that moment of um, okay, that makes sense. I need I need to be vulnerable. You know, because we talk about what does it mean to trust someone else? And, And I think what it what it means now to me is trusting Anybody, it doesn't matter who it is and it doesn't matter in what context, but it is opening myself up to the potential of their failure and my hurt, my disappointment, however you wish to describe it. So I'm, I'm connecting those two things. And I'm actually going to think more on that because everywhere you turn, you know, I've, I've Today's podcast is about some of the books that have had the biggest impact on us, and a lot of those books talk in massive quantities about trust. Mm. So, so I think that for me, it's a reconsideration of that vulnerability. Nice. That was a very long. That was a very long-winded <laughs> waffle, wasn't
0: it? But it's interesting, isn't it? How how sometimes you need that time to think these things through and i would suggest that probably a lot of uh, what i train nowadays are because i've had that time that thinking time to to think about how something fits in with something else and you make those connections and all of a sudden it becomes so much easier then to train because you've got some depth to your knowledge haven't you yes so i like that
1: and also um those connections one of the things that differentiates someone who's good as a facilitator and a trainer is the capacity to demonstrate those connections in a way that other people that the people in the room or the people online are saying oh yeah yeah that makes sense that's obvious yeah okay take
0: cool so so for me my learning this week uh, is as a result of having my chickens oh yes <laughs> the chicken well, I mean story continues you, the chicken, the chicken. <laughs> so so what's really interesting is that chickens need to be trained uh when you get them sort of fairly fairly young um at they, they the technical term is they call them the point of lay which is a kind of like 15 to 18 weeks so mine are 18 weeks um when i got them they they don't know what to do in the new environment. You know, they've always always been brought up in a situation in the farm where I bought them from, and they don't know what to do in the new environment. So you put them in the coop, they have a little mill around, but of course come bedtime they all have to go into the into the chicken house. They don't know to go into the chicken house. They probably haven't got one in the farm. They were probably just milling around and you know, lying down wherever they could find a spot. <laughs> So day one, um, there was the chasing them around the coop, <laughs> 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 shoving them into the uh, into the into the chicken um, house, and shutting the door <laughs> to stop them from evacuating as soon as you put them in. Um, yeah, quite a challenge. So day two, um, two of them realised that that's where I need to be when the sun goes down, and uh, w- walked in. The rest seem to sit on top of the house. So they're kind of, kind of getting there, but not quite in the right, in the right frame. Um, anyway, so by, by day four, they all now realise that come sundown, they need to get into the house, and, uh, and they are now trained to do that. But it's all about conditioning, isn't it? So my kind of learning is you can't expect the finished article after the first round there's got to be this repetitive kind of nature to the whole cycle, yeah. I mean, four days I think is quite swift for a bird of little brain, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but only you know that's that's probably something that we can take through into into you know our own lives is that something we were discussing I think uh, last week when we talked about the seventy twenty ten. It's the repetition. It's the actual doing on the job, which consolidates that initial theory, theoretical learning that we have. And it's really there, that we start to properly learn from a practical context.
1: That is such a, um, a, a truism, because so many organizations will ask you to come and deliver some training. And when you say, well, you know, how, how are you gonna follow this through? Um, uh, are the team leaders, are the managers going to be following this up? Are you going to have follow-up sessions? Um, how are you going to measure, uh, not necessarily the ROI, but your behavioral change that you're, you're trying to instill, you know, the people going into the coop at night. Yes. (laughs) Uh, 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 And they just, people just look at you blankly and say, no, 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 no. We just want you to come and do some training.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: And, and and we're back to day one of chasing chickens into a coop, aren't we?
0: Absolutely right. Yeah, that's a good good analogy because that is what yeah. happens, isn't it? The,
1: you know, the learning you, you...
0: has been done, but actually, it's not been learned.
1: Correct. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, someone somewhere gets to put a tick in a box that says some training was delivered. Yep, I've met my um, my KPIs or, or objectives for the year or whatever it was. But really, has there been any kind of behavioral change, mm. um, you know, and thinking about your chickens, a single exposure to a new idea, you know, like going into the coop at night, doesn't engender any kind of behavioral change. That's just, well, oh, this is a bit weird, you know, yes. okay, um, and, and he <laughs> shut the door. And it needs to happen over and over and over again. And human beings are creatures of routine. So that, that reinforcement. Yeah. I think that's spot on. <laughs> that is, that is, I, I feel for organizations that measure their training in terms of an annual objective to do some training. Yes. You, you know, rather than this is what we are trying to achieve. And, this is our budget to try and achieve it, how can we best use that? Which may or may not involve a classroom or yeah. you know, formal training.
0: No, I agree. So yeah. So I feel a book coming on, actually Nate. You know, Ooh. it's it's the, the world of training through chickens. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh. So talking about a book coming on, would you like to start with your first book?
0: I will. Yeah. So in number five for me is a book that we've been talking about uh, for several weeks. um, And it is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lencioni. Uh, So in number five for me, I have The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's a book that we've been talking about uh, over the uh, last several weeks. Um, why is this book that changed my life? Well, because um, I was originally quite sceptical about this one. And possibly when you are sceptical, you test the contents of it. You test the material and you test the learning that comes from it. And um, in testing it, I actually found that it works. <laughs> so five dysfunctions of a team um, has then led me to, uh, to get licensed in the delivery of this book. As a product by um, Patrick Lentione's, uh his um, his company called table group yeah the book is a fable the book goes through the story it it talks about a pyramid of five things that can go wrong in a team um, starting with the element of trust like you just said um, then moving on to a conflict or a, a challenge amongst the uh, the members of the team. Um, whereby it doesn't get vicious or nasty, it gets uh, to the point of the, of the actual matter in, a, in the correct way. And then from there it moves into um, aspects like um, uh, commitment and uh, accountability, etc. The one thing that I would say the book doesn't go into, and herein is, is to your point about resilience and about um, vulnerability and trust, is that you need other books to then plug in to understand what is that trust, what is that conflict, how do I go about it, how do I go about commitment, how do I go about accountability, etc. So this gives you the the raw headings, as it were, of the five elements that go to making a high-performing, cohesive unit. But it doesn't tell you then the detail that sits behind it, the, the, the third dimension, if you like. Um, but yeah, great book because because what it does is it, it talks through, you know, those elements that make up a, a, a great team and hopefully gives leaders some confidence that if they haven't got those five elements, well, mate, you need to get them. And if your team is being disruptive in achieving those five elements, then you need to get rid of that disruption. Because otherwise, you're never going to get a a cohesive unit. And what's really interesting, Nath, is um, the number of people that read that book and they read it through the paradigm, through the lens of, yeah, we're doing that. Yeah, we're doing that. Yeah, we're doing that. Well, (laughs) the proof of the pudding is in the eating, isn't it? And the team is not cohesive. It is not a high performing team. So something in that five is a. A big X is a is a no, is it's not happening, um, and that probably that first thing that element of trust can incorporate this recognition that actually let's be honest with ourselves when we're making these evaluations of our team. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Um, oh, yes. not doing up. So five yes. dysfunctions of team. Patrick Lencioni, great book. Give it a read. It's a fable. It's, you can read it in a day. It's easy.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, because uh, so many books now have this kind of fable way of writing. In fact, uh, I've i have uh, I, I've got one in my stack um, that, that is written as a fable, and it just makes it easy to read. You know, I, I read a book on change a few years ago, and um, brilliant piece of writing. Uh, if you were studying change through the eyes of someone at university. In fact, by the time I got to about um, chapter two or chapter three, I, I was contemplating slashing my wrists, but, but I, <laughs> I, I thought I'd persevere. Uh, some of you may have come across the work of John Cotter. Um, yeah. yeah. Sometime after the release of his initial. A book on change, which I was just looking for on my shelf and I can't see it. I don't know where it's gone. Um, he released another book uh, called My My Iceberg is Melting, which you probably read, which is a fable, easy read, and sales of that went through the roof. Yeah. You know, so I, I'm a fan of the fable. Um, it makes things easy to comprehend. Love, love the five dysfunctions of a team. I think it's a great read, um, and I think Pat's done a fab job in that structuring the, the fable in the background. Okay, cool. And what's yours? All right. So, I'm going to I'm going to go in the other direction. I'm going to start off with number one.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um, and my number one, uh, it's called man's search for meaning. And it was written by Viktor Frankl. And um, this is a book that I have owned probably somewhere between 15 and 20 times. And I recommend everybody buy in physical version, not a digital version. And the reason is you read it and then you give it to someone else. And the reason you do that is because this book puts life in context. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish Austrian. Um, he was uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time. So he was starting his career as a psychologist and in front of his eyes, the entire world changed. And over the period of 1940s, uh, Austria was invaded by Germany and the Jews were basically selectively weaned out. And uh, he ended up in various concentration camps over the period of the war and wasn't released until 1945. Now, during that time, his entire family, you know, and, and I stress that word entire, including his new wife, his parents, and basically, everybody he knew were, in one way or another, exterminated through the Nazi program of Final Solution. the The question that Frankel had for the entire book was, "Why am I still alive? I, I'm not the strongest person in this camp. Um, I don't have the best shoes, um, which will makes which will make sense if you actually read the book." I don't have the warmest coat. Um, I don't have the best eyesight. In fact, I wear glasses and they're broken and have been for a couple of years. But why am I still alive? And he worked out that the reason he was still alive was because he had a reason to stay alive. And that was that he started writing this book on scraps of paper. So his his reason for being was to get the message of what he had endured and to ensure that it never happened again out to the world. So why do I love this book? I love this book, as I said, because it puts everything in context. Um, it, It taught me more about the Holocaust than anything else I've read or or, known. Um, It's a personal story. He doesn't try to make any kind of connection between what the Nazis were doing, the psychology in the background, the the fear, the loathing, any of that. He doesn't do that. What he says is, this is my experience. This comes from me. Um, And I, I personally think this should be mandatory reading for Every 13-year-old, um, particularly those that think they've got it so hard, um, because they have no freaking idea what hard even means, you know?
0: <laughs> um,
1: oh, no, the Wi-Fi is down. Uh, okay. That is hard. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow, man, you, you're, your life is nearly over. Um And it's interesting because you talk about trust and he touches on trust in this book and it's really interesting because at one point I recall a story where he says that a group of prisoners were told they were freed and they were so excited. They were so elated. Um, And they so trusted the people that told them that they were free. They climbed willingly onto the back of trucks. They climbed willingly off the back of those trucks and into barracks that were then burnt down with them in. You know, there is an entire study uh, around the vulnerability and the trust piece there that, that, you know, um, that that came out of that. Yeah, I'll I'll climb onto the back of the truck. When Viktor Frankl was finally released, uh, he went back to Austria and he resumed his career as a psychologist. And he progressed very quickly. He was chair of the Austrian Psychological Society and various other things like that. But he developed a, um, a psychological—I don't know what you would call it—theory, uh, and it called it logotherapy. And he said one of the differences between conventional psychology and or, or psychoanalysis and logotherapy is that psychoanalysis tends to look backwards and say, what's happened in your past? Logotherapy looks forward and says, what do you want your future to be like? What is your why? So uh, I think Viktor Frankl was talking about why long before Simon Sinek's famous kind of TED talk and his book ever came out. He was talking about your what is your reason for being? Because without it, you have no reason for existing. So that's my book, my first book. I think it's a game changer. I think everybody should read it. Um, I think one of the things that worries me as we get further and further from the atrocities of the Second World War is that people start to forget and the stories stop being told about how bad it was and how many people suffered, how many people died. You know, so I think a book like this, I personally think should be mandatory reading for kids because they need to know about what happened. And then they need to put the, the one and one together and go, wow, this equals three. This is not just a history lesson about the, the atrocities. It's a psychology lesson about my reason for being, my why. So, yeah, there we go, book one
0: was Victor frankl the, the the fellow that um is recorded as when the atrocities were happening to him he took himself out of psychological yes, of out of body context and it was happening almost to someone else not to him is that- yep
1: and, and that was his way of dealing with the horrors of being operated on without an anesthetic yeah think about that for a second he also and and let's use that specific piece. Not only did he have the capacity to kind of disassociate himself from his physical body. I want to be careful here because I don't want people thinking this is some kind of book about mysticism or anything like that, because it's not. Um, That was just his way of dealing with the the situation he found himself in. But going beyond that, not just dealing with the, the the incision of the scalpel, when you actually recover, you need to deal with the person who was holding the scalpel. And he said, he did what he had to do. And that was how he dealt with it. I I hold no malice towards this person. I I look at that and you know what I, I said, I've probably owned 15 or 18 copies of this. I've read this book so many times. And every time I read it, I think to myself, how would have I coped? How would have I dealt with that situation? And how could I turn around to someone who knowingly had caused me such pain? You know, and and it's interesting because there's been a lot of debates and a lot of people say, well, possibly what happened was he actually passed out because of the the amount of pain. So he talks about that disassociation. but it may well be that he actually just, you know, the body just said, I can't take this pain. Um, But how was it that he was able to post-event deal with the the, the individual, you know, for, for some people, their entire life would be about revenge and kind of that they would go down that spiral of self-destruction associated with revenge. Whereas he went up and said, I, I, this has happened. I'm going to push it over there and say, you know what? They did what they thought they had to do at that moment in time. And I'm moving forward. I'm moving into the future. I'm not going to dwell on the past.
0: That's, that's your number one. A very worthy number that, one as well.
1: That is my number one. Oh. Um, if you took all the others away, I would fight you for this one.
0: <laughs> Great. So my, my number four, moving up uh, up the list is um well it's a combination it's a combination of two here and the reason why it's a combination is exactly what we've been discussing about um earlier on so this is um seven habits of highly effective people um by by uh stephen covey of course and the one thing, I read this book when I had just been made redundant or just received my notice of being made redundant from um, cable and wireless. And I bought it as a book to read on a plane when I went to go and visit my my parents in Australia. And I started reading it and I started doing the exercises that uh, Stephen Covey talks about in The Seven Habits. By the By the end of the holiday, when I'd finished the book, uh, I, kind of, I kind of looked at probably a, a horrific experience for an employee being made redundant, being effectively told that you are surplus to requirements, you are no longer required to work in this company, as a positive experience. And it really helped me. It really helped galvanize my, my mindset to see the positive in what was quite a, an otherwise negative experience a uh, little bit of information about the seven habits if if people haven't read it is that it's effectively there's two victories that uh, that covey talks about uh, and within the the, uh, the two victories are uh, three habits in each or four habits in the second one and the private victory the what happens inside me is split into three things or three habits he says uh, one is being proactive second is being uh, beginning with the end in mind, and the third is putting first things first. Now, when you come to actually put those into uh, the context of who am I uh, and how do I think, this is where my second book in this uh, in this series really helped, and that is the Simon Sinek Start With Why. It's what you were just talking about with regards to um, Viktor Frankl. Yeah, the start with why kind of builds on these seven habits. And actually what uh, what really attracted me to Stephen Covey's book in the first place is right up front he says, look, none of this is me, none of this is is new. All of this is amalgamation of stuff which has been around for ages. I've just compiled them into a list of seven things. Uh and Sinek then I think builds on it. Um probably not intentionally, but builds on it as to explain how do you actually find your why how do you actually go about that process of understanding what the end should look like so that you can begin with the end in mind and put first things first etc so I, I, i really think those two go hand in hand and for me the two in combination have been a bit of a game changer in my life having gone through uh what my what my end in mind looked like you know you create your own vis- uh, mission statement don't you your own personal vision i think that's been really helpful for um when it comes to making decisions in in my life you know because you've got something to underpin it you've got your why to underpin that decision and that then has really helped to uh to sort of guide uh my decisions and it, it's really interesting because when people that I I coach, when they um say, well, you know, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I've I've got these decisions to make. I've, I've I, I honestly I've looked at both of them. They've all got pros and cons, and I do not know which route I need to take. Nine times out of ten, Nath, it is the result of a, a lack of understanding of what is your why. Mm-hmm. You know? And if you had that, it's a no-brainer. You choose the, the one route. The second one is superfluous and is irrelevant to you. The first one is the one. And and what tends to cloud the issue, I've seen, is money. Because people really? think in terms of... Um, so, for example, uh, I have a choice of two jobs. One job will give me money and status. The second job sounds like good fun. Um, it's the good fun when you analyse that good fun bit, it's because it's good fun the reason why you see it as good fun is because it enhances your why Is because it it is uh, compatible with the person you want to be and people when they look at money they think well security well you know it'll help uh, you know Pay for a bigger house, nice car, give me that status, that standing in society etc etc, but in reality, that's not what they want. what they want is to feel good about who they are and about where their life is heading, and that's really an understanding of knowing your why and then using your why in order to to guide your principles um, and your decisions in life so I think that throughout life, I have probably throughout post that trip to Australia, I've lost sight sometimes of my why. And so mm-hmm. it is, is really good to, uh, to revisit it from time to time, to look at it again and think, am I actually making the right decisions that are going to help me get there to my why? Or am I making decisions which um, are based upon things like um, money or things like status? So yeah, really useful book for me. Love the book. Uh,
1: think it's think it's a game changer. That book. Um, and when you had it on your list, I was like. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so you've you've talked about habits one, two, and three. What are your thoughts on habits four, five, and six? <laughs>
0: Well, yes, this is, I mean, 4, 5, and 6, the the, uh, the public victory, of what a how I deal with other people, isn't it? And what Cobby makes a point of saying, and he's quite right, is you've got to sort yourself out before you can have that public victory and sort other people out. 4, 5, and 6, I think, are really compatible with my, uh, with my previous book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. 'Cause herein is how you deal with other people, uh, and if it's in group environment or if it's in, you know, the wider context, it doesn't really matter. We've discussed, haven't we, about the, the think-win-win mentality. Now a lot of people mm-hmm. I, I, I do a fair bit of work in sales with sales leadership and sales training, and a lot of people think win-win is I get the sale, they get the product. <laughs> and mm what coffee yep. actually says is, is no it goes further than that it's more of a uh, how do you build the relationship so that there is a continuous uh, win-win that it's not just a one-off win-win it's something which is going to last for the longer term and I think that that gets kind of lost when we're looking at uh, modern day context so win-win I think is a is a long-term win-win it's how is that relationship between you and the other person going to be impacted? Um, and I think that that's brought out really quite nicely. Um, I personally would have habit five though: uh, seek first to understand, then to be understood. Before this one, and I love this one. This this is this is my mantra. Maybe because I am that introverted individual and don't like to be doing so much of the talking, but I have always built my sales. On understanding the other person rather than pontificating to them, rather than lecturing to them about what they should and shouldn't do. So, I like the idea of seeking first to understand the other people in the room, Mm -hmm. understand where they're coming from, and uh, maybe understand a little bit about their why before then trying to blend that into a conversation, move it into the training context, or move it into a sale. I think that really, for me, seeking first to understand it is probably one of the key ones of dealing with other people. Habits six and seven, and I don't—I'd be interested to know about your um, experiences with habits six and seven. So, habit six, synergize, and seven, sharpen the saw. I think they tend to get overlooked and forgotten. What do you think?
1: Habit six, one of my books is called "Collaboration Begins with You," uh, and Let's be really brutal here. Synergy, collaboration, exactly the same thing. Let, let's, uh, you know, let's let's not mire ourselves in semantics, um, particularly when it comes to the business context. Uh, collaboration and synergy, one plus one equals three. That's really where it's at. In my experience, the reason Habit 6 gets lo- overlooked, is not because people don't want to look at it, it's because there's a lack of maturity to actually engage with it. Hold that thought until I come to okay. my book, because okay. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that more. Um, habit seven's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, Sharpen the saw. We have become so preoccupied, so obsessed with activity, with moving forward, With ticking things off, with milestones, with gates, with objectives, with goals, with you know everything else off that list, we no longer sit on the edge of a hill and watch clouds and just allow our brains to wander. Very true. Um, We 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 don't take the time to look after the machine that produces the results, and you might recall in. Um, in the kind of the the initial chapters of of the book, there's a comment about P versus PC, production versus production capability. Yes. So output output versus the machine. I I don't know about you, but I, I see this daily where people are so fixated on the output. There is no worry or concern about the machine that's delivering the output. And if you think about it, we are the machine. Um, and whether it's good ideas or whether it's leadership or whether it's management or whether it's being part of a team or whether it's parenting or whether it's being a partner, it doesn't really matter w- where it is. Often we are so fixated on doing the do we don't step back and say, "How can I do the do better? What do I need to do to a- actually look after the machine that is doing the do many many years ago uh I was at an event, and someone made a comment, and I wish I knew who it was because I would credit them with it, but they said, you know, we, we are we are human beings, not human doings, and, and, and that's always really sat with me. It's really stuck with me, and I think for a lot of people, and work is, uh, has facilitated this view of the world, we're, we're human doings. We we measure the success of our day by what we got done. So frequently, people will go home at the end of the day, and say, "I've been flat out all day, and I've got nothing done." And they beat themselves up because they got nothing done. They must have got something done. I've been busy all day. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, so I'm I'm a fan of habit seven. Um, I talk about riding my bike a lot. I enjoy riding my bike. I love getting out. Um, it gives me mental clarity and it uh it it gives me something to strive for as an old guy you know I'm, i'm trying to keep up with kids young enough to be my kids probably kids um and uh so there's skill there's fitness there's mental clarity all included in that hour two hour ride do people value that do people say you know, as part of their why, part of their mission statement, part of habit to begin with the end in mind, um, this is important to me. I need to look after the machine. So many people ha- have never, ever thought about getting better at being a partner. You, you know, they said, yes, you know, I've got a ring on the finger, done deal. Mm. A- and then five years, 10 years down the track, what do you mean you want to leave? What do you mean? This is not working for you? I, you know, I thought. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think habit six and seven get overlooked, and I think one of the reasons we overlook six is because of a lack of maturity, um, that capacity to quiet the ego, and not have to be the big I am. And one of the reasons habit seven gets overlooked is because I'm just too busy doing. I'm too busy doing to slow down and and assess the doing. Is it even the right thing to be doing? Yeah,
0: you know, you no, know. you're absolutely right, and and <laughs> output um, is not seen; it's not perceived as something which comes out of *Habit 7, Is it? So, yeah, you yeah, mm. absolutely spot on. Cool. So but, that's but, that's two from me. What's your second, Nathan?
1: It, it's interesting. I um, I'm I'm actually thinking about completely messing with my pile now, and <laughs> I'm going to move to um. So you you talked about the idea of money clouding decisions. I, I'm not going to say book number two. I'm just going to say my next book is The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. We've already mentioned you talked about his book, Why. Um, I, I mentioned it in relation to Man's Search for Meaning. But I'd like to talk about his most recent book, which is The Infinite Game. This book builds on the work of Professor James Cass, who kind of tweaked Simon's thinking. Now, I want to make it very clear here. Make sure you buy the right book. I I don't know, maybe a year ago, um, uh, Simon teased the world with the release of this new book, and he talked about Infinite Games. I think he did a video, and he mentioned James Cass's book, um, Finite Versus Infinite Games, and Nathan thought... I'm going to get ahead of the game there. I'm going to dive in and get that one. Yeah. Um, man, that is, uh, they are two very different books and I highly recommend the infinite game by Simon Sinek. And, and again, unless you're a, um, a university lecturer or you're, you're studying this from an ac- academic perspective, I don't recommend James Cass's work. No. Um, good, it's good stuff. You know, it, it really is foundational for Simon Sinek's, book. It's just hard to digest. So why do I like this book? Um, I think Simon is a great storyteller um, and he has the capacity to pull stories from seemingly nowhere and tie them beautifully into the topic for that chapter or the, the, the subheading, etc. Um, and again, we're back to that idea of the fable. It, it just makes things so much more connectable. So much more relatable. I can. Oh, okay. Wow, that's that makes sense to me. The the book itself, I think, is mind expanding, and the reason it's mind expanding is because we have been schooled consciously and less consciously in the finite game, in the win lose. Um, so we're back to habits. Um, habit four: Think win win of the seven habits. Um, the infinite game is about ultimately thinking win-win. One of the really nice things about Simon's books is he tends to have a really expansive index. So one of the things I will often do is I'll read a book and then I will think, oh, that that story about United Airlines was really good. Where is it? And you're suddenly going, oh, <laughs> flick, 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 flick. So I I I do like a. That has a good index, you know, and a substantial index. So I really like that. Um, what I want to do is, I'd, I'd like to read just a couple of segments out of this, um, just short, and just to give people a, a sense of what this is all about. Finite and infinite games. If there are at least two players, a game exists, which I think is really interesting. Um, so, I'm, um, Jonathan, you talked about sales and the, the idea of sales you've made over time there are at least two players in a, in a sale aren't there absolutely we've got a game <laughs> and all of a sudden you go hang on well what, nathan come on nathan you're you're trivializing my life's work here you know it's not a game this is serious no it's a game and the reason it's a game is because there are two kinds of games there are finite and infinite Finite games are played by known players, they have fixed rules, and there is agreed upon objective that when reached, ends the game. Um, He then gives an example of football being a finite game. Infinite games, in contrast, are played by known and unknown players. So, the grocery industry, Tesco's, Morrison's, Asda. Known players? Where does Ocado sit? What do you think?
0: So, Ocado, are they not uh, delivering? Are they not uh, distributing the products of Ooh, the likes of Waitrose? That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I might be wrong.
1: But, no, no, uh, that's exactly what they do. That's exactly what they do. Here's a little uh, little story that I picked up a couple of days ago. So, the chief executive of Tesco is on a long-term incentive plan. What the board have decided to do is remove Accardo from the group. Of companies that Tesco's is being measured against. And the reason they've decided to remove Accardo is because Accado is not a grocer. Cardo is a technology company. That's interesting, you described it as a delivery company. But they're a technology company, is what they said. Oh. If Cardo was included in the group, that his long-term incentive was being measured against his bonus would be worth £800,000. Nice. Mm-hmm. Not to be sniffed at. If you take a cardo out of that group, his bonus is £2.4
0: Ah, <laughs> therein lies the issue.
1: <laughs> and we're back to your comment from before, Money Cloud's decision-making.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And money ends up We end up making finite based decisions rather than infinite based decisions. And when you were talking about that, I was just thinking, and which is why I've jumped to this book, I think what you described is so spot on with the infinite game, there are no exact or agreed upon rules. So a technology company could actually be included as a grocer. Yeah. You know, a delivery company could include be included in that benchmark group of, of organizations to be measured against. Although there may be conventions or laws that govern how these players conduct themselves within those broader boundaries, the players can operate however they want. And if they choose to break with convention, they can. The manner in which each player chooses to play is entirely up to them, and they can change how they play the game at any time and for any reason. Infinite games have infinite time horizons, and because there is no finish line, no practical end to the game, there is no such thing as winning an infinite game. In an infinite game, the primary objective is to keep playing, to perpetuate the game. Now, this might sound a little morbid, and I I, please, I don't mean it to be morbid, I mean it to be an example. But if you think about the rise of ISIS and Daesh, you no, know, there's an organization that has looked at what we consider to be conventional rules of war and have said, that's not how we're going to play. We, we don't care what your rules say. These are our rules, and this is the way we're going to play. Because of the, the belief structure that sits in the background of their religion and everything else that comes with it, they're playing the infinite game. And you get people like Donald Trump saying, we've won the war against terror. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Donald I've got some, some really disheartening news for you coming your way, and it's going to come your way whether you like it or not. Um, you know, the, the horrendous example of what happened in Reading just a couple of days ago, truly horrendous. And, and yet the, the, this is a, an infinite game. It's a game that is... Played by known and unknown. So here's a guy who basically was uh, unknown. You know, he was an actor that, that was unknown. He had been initially flagged up by security services and then said, oh, he's not, a, he's not a threat, not an issue." Dropped off. So known and unknown. Um, Australia's at the at the moment is under a massive cyber attack. The belief is that it's being led by China because of Australia's insistence for a some form of inquiry into COVID-19 and whether or not there was a cover-up of, of its initial outbreak and things like that. Um, and again, people are saying, well, this is not fair, da-da-da-da-da, infinite game. Yeah. You know, by known and unknown actors with rules that they choose to or not abide by. You, you might be aware of... Um, Situation in the South China Sea, where China has been quietly building islands. You know that the the international convention says that you know you have a twelve mile limit, which is effectively the distance a cannonball can travel. Well, (laughs) is that the eight mile? Eight mile doesn't matter. China's been building islands and and saying, "Well, this is ours now, and we've got a twelve mile limit around this one, and that connects to the next island. We've got a twelve mile limit around that that one, and that one, and that one." And the Philippines are saying, well, hang on. That was our international. They they were our waters. And what you've got is you've got an actor that's playing an infinite game. They're saying, you know what? We're changing the rules. This is how we're playing this game now. So I think it's really interesting. And I I just love this book. There is so much to this book that the, the content of it, when it, Talks talks about things like ethical fading, and it talks about a worthy rival. I love that a worthy rival. Uh, As you know, I'm a Formula One fan, and at the moment, the Williams Formula One team is in dire straits. Okay, Toto Wolff, who is the uh, MD of the Mercedes Formula One team, has just invested a whole chunk of money into them. Hang on, why would he do that? Because he knows that their game called Formula One is perpetuated when you've got um, sufficient teams of worthy rivals. Because not having, you know, for someone to say, well, you know, great, that's one less less player. You know, my chances of winning have increased. Well, they haven't really. Williams has sat on the back of the grid for the last X number of years. People recognise the need for a worthy rival because they're playing the infinite game, not the finite game, you know, we'll get rid of it to win. No, it's a spectacle. And we need the spectacle to proceed. Money Cloud's decisions, you you, you made that comment. And I just wanted to talk about a company called CVS, which um, Simon makes reference to in, in the book. Hanging in the lobby of its corporate headquarters was a huge sign that stated their just cause helping people on their path to better health. And the company executives believed it. They saw their company as having a purpose beyond just making money. They wanted to use their company to advance something bigger. They regularly had meetings with healthcare companies, hospitals, and physicians on how they could work better together for patients. However, near the end of many of these meetings, someone would point to the elephant in the room. But don't you sell cigarettes in your stores? In February, 2014, CVS Caremark announced that it would stop selling any alcohol-related products in all of their over two thousand eight hundred stores. It was a decision that would cost the company two billion dollars per year in lost revenue. You know that there's a, a really interesting decision being made there, where for a long time money had been clouding their decision, but when they went back to their value statement, back to their why. They said, you know, we can't, we just can't proceed with this. You know, it was a decision they choose to make, even though there was no competitive pressure to do so. Um, there was no loud public demand that they make the decision. There was no scandal. There was no online campaign to force them to make the decision. They decided it was the right thing to do. Um, he then goes on for two or three pages talking about uh, CVS and how there was an initial fall in their stock price and how. Um, pundits said this will never work you know you're shooting yourself in the foot and things like that and however a period of approximately a year their share price doubled. Love the idea of the infinite game, highly recommend this book to everybody Uh, read it with a paradigm of moving into that win-win space no, you've read it,
0: so any thoughts? Yeah, well you, uh, what you were saying there, uh, particularly in the initial parts, was, uh, was really interesting and resonated with me because I've looked up uh, an email that, uh, sorry, no, a text message even, that I've sent to a friend. Um, and the friend was basically saying, Oh, I see that uh, everything's starting to move now as a result, re- result of um, an easing back of the lockdown restrictions. Um, so everything's returning back to normal and you'll soon be out uh, delivering training." And I said, (laughs) my response, and this is my text message, I said, I suspect that training will be the very last thing on the corporate agenda to return. As companies try desperately to keep shareholders happy through a short-term sales focus, anything else will be considered garnish. Uh, And then I said, I'm reading Sinek's latest book that highlights how short-term focus results in compromises of ethics, Dubious sales practices and little regard for people, uh, and I think this is, this is where we're heading now. And I do, and I uh, that ethical fading that you're talking about, I I think absolutely mm-hmm. is going to be uh, what's going to happen in the in the next era of of our working life. And I think we're going to see a lot of um, managers who are going to get quite. Um, Uh, challenging of their people, shall we say, because they're not hitting targets, or they're struggling to hit targets, which will result in people hitting targets at the detriment of those relationships. Win-win will go out the window, as as you rightly put it. Um, And I I just think that we're moving into this short-termism. And actually, as I read the book, so I'm a child child that was born in the 60s, which means that come the 80s and the Thatcherite years, when everything was about me, everything was about um, ensuring that I get my rights, I get the best, I I win. And I think that that is the ethical fading that we are going to be seeing in the short term over the next few months. Mm -hmm. Everything is about how can I achieve my targets? How can I um, avoid getting Told off by my manager, or, or avoid getting the sack, or avoid, etc etc And I think in the book he talks about uh, Wells Fargo and um, their mm-hmm. their ethical fading, where they they effectively went down that route. And I just see that yep. that's where we are going to head again. So all of our trading Sign,
1: signed up millions of people, didn't they?
0: They did. Or hundreds of thousands of people fabricated all know. of them as well. And I I, I just think that organizations need to take stock of where they are and not think about okay how are we going to get back to where we were they we need to think about redesigning or, or reinventing uh the way in which they do things for the new era and that may well mm-hmm. be a complete change in the processes and the procedures. Next week, the two old dogs will continue the challenge to uncover their remaining three books that have changed their lives. So watch out for the next podcast in the series. Well, huge thanks to Nathan. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please do subscribe to us. And if you like what you hear, we'd love it if you could leave us a review on your podcast channel. Thanks again and we look forward to next week's episode where Nathan and I, two old dogs, will be training new tricks.